13, if you would. If you're looking at our row and thinking, where are the rest of the family? They're scattered everywhere. We have kids from Missouri to California right now. Lene, our youngest one, is down with the Westbergs, spending time with her best cousin, best friend, Evie. Heather is with her best friend in New Mexico. Her friend Katie just got married. Brianna's with her college roommate, former college roommate, out in San Francisco, helping her move. So Angela and I have empty nests right now. We're not used to that, but we're enjoying it and glad to be home for a little while. We just got back from two months in California, and then I was home for 36 hours, turned around and went on the men's wilderness retreat. Wasn't as bad for me as Brian Irving. He got home with two hours after Wyoming, turned around and went to Colorado. And we had a really good retreat. It seems like every year the Lord shows himself strong. I, I won't say too much because then I'll take all the thunder from the guys tonight. But I will just say that every, every detour we came to during the men's retreat turned up to be something better, as is often the case. We were looking at that in Joseph's life. We'll look at it in the scripture today. One thing I will say about the wilderness retreat, Tony and I had been commiserating. What are we going to use as a theme this year? And he said, you yeah, know, the Lord hasn't really definitely impressed me. I said, I've been thinking about Peter. And from fisherman to fisher of men, he said, oh, I like that idea. So we prayed about it, and the Lord gave me a green light on Peter. And during our men's retreat, we looked at Peter's commission. That's where he was called by the Savior. Then we looked at his confession when he said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And from there, we moved into Peter's confusion, the time that he denied the Lord. And you'd think that's the end of it. But we finished with his contract extension. And I've been thinking a lot about that with sports and contract extensions. The Lord gave him a contract extension. He said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. I haven't changed my mind on what I want you to do. And so those were the four parts we studied during the men's retreat. The one incident I really wanted to get to and didn't was Peter walking on the water. So I get to it today. You get to hear that part of it. We're in Matthew 14, if you will. Matthew 14. Let me give you some background here. Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000. You remember, he was burdened for the whole crowd. They had been with him for days, and he said, if I send them away now, they don't have anything to eat. They're going to pass out by the way. They're going to faint by the wayside. And he said, "Uh, you guys give them to eat. They said, Lord, we don't have anything. He said, what do you have? There was a little lad there, a little boy. Remember, he had five loaves and two fish. And five loaves, I mean, these aren't our wonder loaves, okay? These are little tiny, uh, they were barley loaves, tiny little bread. And it'd be like a, a piece of pita for you. And they had some fish. So it's a little kid. I mean, he's a growing boy, but what's that, they said, among so many. And the Lord said, make everybody sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. You remember he looked up and he blessed the bread and he gave it to the disciples to set before them. And Peter thought, well, this won't take long. You know, two fish, five loaves, one, two, one, two, three, four, five, done. But every time they thought they were finished, they kept passing and kept passing and kept passing. And next thing you knew, 5,000 men, plus their wives, plus their kids. Jews had big families. Tens of thousands of people, maybe. And they were all fed, and there were still fragments left. They collected all the leftovers, and there were 12 baskets full. Every apostle got a take-home, you know, a reminder of what the Lord did that day. So that has just commenced, uh, concluded, I'm sorry. And now this commences. This is a new wave of excitement in the Lord's ministry. Pick up in verse 21, I'm sorry, 22. 21 is the end of the feeding of the 5,000. So follow in verse 22. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to a mountain apart to pray. And when the even was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves. The wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a spirit, 
And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come to thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked in the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said to him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come unto the sh- into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the, in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. We'll stop there. I call this message today, Sink or Swim, I'm with Him. Sink or Swim, I'm with Him. These men had just seen Jesus feed the 5,000, and now Jesus sends the crowd away. Thought, you know, they had just come an incredible event in Jesus' life. Feeding them showed His power over nature. He took those loaves, took those fish, multiplied them so everybody had ample. And now He spreads the crowd. What's going on? Well, not all the Gospels give all the details. And we know from John chapter 6, verse 15, you'd find this, that the people having heard, having seen Jesus feed the multitude, they come and they say, let's make him a king. So they're saying he can feed multitudes. He's our him the king. Now, he would ultimately be the king. But remember, he kept saying, my hour's not yet come. It wasn't the will of God for him to be king yet. Why did they want him to be king? I remember when uh, President Obama got voted into office, one woman said, I won't ever have to pay my mortgage again. I won't have to pay my car payment. And, you know, she just figured he's going to pay everything. That's what they're thinking. This man will just feed us and he'll pay our mortgage and make him a king. That isn't the reason that Jesus came. And so he realizes if this continues, my disciples are going to be swept up with this euphoria. So he says, you fellas get in the boat. I want you to go back. Now, I can imagine there was some protest by them. We're not leaving without you. I'll catch up with you. You get in the boat, you go. When he sends them off, then he tells the crowd, okay, meeting's over, time for you to go. I fed you, but the next meal's on you. All right, so they've got to go. And what does he do? He goes up into the mountain to pray. I'm going to give you three observations, and we'll look at this from Jesus' perspective, although Peter's the one that always captivates our attention. But remember, whenever God works through the life of one of his people, it is God who's working in the life of his people. And so we want to focus on the Savior here. First of all, I want you to see, number one, is seeking the Father in verses 22 and 23. Seeking the Father. Let's go back to 22 for a minute. And straightway, right away, Jesus constrained the disciples to get into a ship. Get the idea they didn't want to go. He tells them, party's over, fellas. It's time to move on. And to go before him unto the other side. So notice, he instructed them, you go, I'll catch you. Now, they have no idea how he's going to get there. Is he going to walk? I mean, there's no other boat. But he told him, I'll meet you on the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he sent the multitudes away, he, he individually, he personally, he singularly, went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the even was come, he was there alone. How many times in the scripture you see Jesus getting alone? He didn't mind being alone. In fact, he sought the solitude. But he didn't just get alone to decompress. He got alone to be with the Father. Now, you think about this in the grand scheme of things, folks. In eternity past, Jesus Christ is the one to whom men were praying. In an eternity past, Jesus is the one to whom prayers are being offered. In the present and eternity future, Jesus is the one receiving prayers. But at this moment, he goes apart to pray. Why? Because whereas men had prayed to him as God, now he is, he is God who is man now prays to the Father. 
he shows us an example. If you're going to live a life pleasing to God on earth, you've got to be in tune with God while you walk on this earth. And that necessitates prayer. He said, I do always those things that please him. And I challenge you to find a place in Scripture where Jesus' life wasn't characterized by prayer. What a challenge that is constantly to me. Without me, you can do nothing. I was doing my normal prayer route from here to QT last night, walking up Brighton. It's about midnight. I know, it's dangerous in Kansas City. I always pray, Lord, I'm not here to tempt you. I'm not here to get shot. You know, I'm not here to get mugged or whatever. And even though I'm 6'6", I'm not stupid. Well, you wouldn't be walking Brighton if you were. Well, okay, well, maybe not. But I always pray, Lord, I'm not here to tempt you. I'm here to, to pray. You know, I got my headlamp out. I just use it for the men's retreat. It was handy. And uh, I walk and I pray and I pray for you. I pray for pastor. I pray for people in the church that have needs. And, you know, I've been preaching for 26 years as an evangelist out of this church. I had this message on my mind. This is brand new. I put it together yesterday and in the days ahead, you know, thinking about it. And, Lord, I, I, without you, I can do nothing. It doesn't matter that you, I've been preaching a second nature to me. Yeah, but I love to preach. But without him, nothing. And every day we need to pray. Every day we need to throw ourselves in dependence upon God. One of my most off-quoted quips concerning prayer outside of the Bible itself was a man named Owen Carr who said, A day without prayer is a boast against God. A day without prayer is a boast against God. Every time we go without praying, we have, in effect, we've said, Thanks, Lord, I'll handle it today. We wouldn't say that to God, but isn't that what we're saying when we don't pray? So notice seeking the Father. Uh, There was the taming of the crowd in verse 22, and there was time out to pray in verse 23. And you and I need to tame the crowd. We need to quiet the restlessness in our lives. And we need to make time to get quiet and pray. And uh, You know, Angela's the one in our family. Angela likes dead silence. If we're driving around, she's happy to have dead silence. I'm usually listening to sports or music or something. I mean, it's not natural to me to have just dead quiet. I think I've learned to create quiet in our trailer because school's always going on and kids are always chattering. And so I'll put in earbuds and listen to instrumental music so I can create my own quiet. Angela likes dead quiet. And I, I've learned I've got to have some, I gotta have some times like last night that are, you know, just God and me. They're just dead quiet times. But it's not, it's not dead quiet in the spirit because you're communing with God. So the Savior's up in the mountain. And I notice this then, there is sifting of the followers. So first is seeking the Father. Then number two is sifting the followers. That's in verses 24 to 29. So pick up with me. What happens after he goes up to pray? They're in the boat. They go on their way. And the story continues. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a spirit. And they cried out with fear. But straightway Jesus said to them, or spake to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, you know, a lot of times we we get on uh, Peter for doubting, but hey, he got out. He climbed over to the side. He's going to go to Jesus. So notice the sifting of the followers. I love this comment from Warren Wearsby. And if any of you have the, the, uh, or don't have the Warren Wearsby commentary, he's got a whole commentary on the New Testament. I'll tell you, it's so practical. I bought a set for Brianna when she graduated from college and gave it to her. 
And uh, Heather's been borrowing mine. It's really good. Wearsby was a pastor for many years, a great student of the Bible. What I like, he's really practical. And so yesterday I was reading, I'm just looking for some practical insights on this. And listen to this paragraph. This is really good. Did Jesus deliberately direct them into the storm? Yes, he writes with an exclamation mark. Uh, They were so, uh, I'm sorry, they um, they were safer in the storm, in God's will, then on the land, with the crowd, out of God's will. We must never judge our security on the basis of circumstances alone. That's a good reminder. We must never judge our security on the basis of circumstances alone. On Friday, Angela and I went to see um, Nick. What's Nick's last name, Pastor? Uh, Marshall. Nick Marshall's an attorney. And we went to see Nick Marshall. He's a graduate of the school here, 1991 graduate. And then he went to Bob Jones. Then he went to UMKC for law. And I don't know that I'd ever met Nick before, but I said, Pastor, Angela and I just need to update our will. If anything happened to us, you know, and Lene's eight, and I want to make sure she's taken care of. So um, we went to Nick, and we were talking the other day. And he said, okay, usually a will just deals with things like where you want your children to go to and your assets and such. And, and so just anything you might have that we need to look at. And we were looking at what we got in this earthly life, and... I'll tell you what, it's pretty much in that trailer in a storage closet up there behind the scoreboard. I mean, that's about it, you know? Things here and there. And I thought about it. The world might tell you that's not a very secure way to live. But I want to tell you, the securest way to live is in the center of the will of God. And one of our ladies uh, asked me today, she said, uh, you know, a pastor is talking about eventually retiring here and moving on and uh, have you time job? She said, you do? I said, yeah, I'm an evangelist. <laughs> that's my full-time job, okay? I'm in the full-time job God's called me to. And sometimes I have thought about, you know, well, what are you going to do down the road? You know, I'm, I plan to do. And if he has something down the road, fine. But this is what I do. This is my thing. And you've got your thing. And every one of our things ought to be God's will. Well, there's no money in it. Well, I don't have the money to do that. Well, I don't think I could take that, with that step and feel secure. Listen, the key to security is not the dollars behind what you want to do. It's the decision maker behind Who's directing you where to go? And what God orders, He pays for. And He tells him, get in the ship. And does He know there's a storm coming? <gasps> Didn't see that coming. Now that never occurred to him. My dad used to say, did it, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? Did it ever occur to you nothing ever occurred to God? The Lord did not wake up and say, ah. And Angela and I spent the other night in the church nursery. Not because we were reverting to our childhood. Because there was a really bad storm that had whipped up. And uh, if Brother Hartzler's here, I have to apologize to him. The night before, we had tried to slip into the, this, the lower basement of the uh, missions house, uh, thinking it was unoccupied. I got the key out of the box and walked in. I had my headlamp on, and I realized that the briefcase was sitting on the, on the uh, console or on the center counter there, and somebody's living in the missions. I found out later it was Brother Hartzler, Hubert Hartzler. And I thought, oh, it's a good thing he's not packing. I could have been shot at 1 o'clock in the morning sneaking into the house. So uh, we went back to our trailer, and the trailer kind of, you know, sloshed around all night. So then the next night, which was, uh, let's see, that would have been Thursday night. So Friday night, we, uh, we went to the church nursery, preemptive, you know, and slept on the floor for a while. And uh, you know, trailers are favorite spots for storms to strike. Now, you know, there were, this is probably because a couple years ago, uh, we were watching storms in the area, and they were all out in Kansas and nowhere around us, and I thought, we're good, and I'm watching a Royals game, and then I opened the front door, and <laughs> my awning got ripped over the top of the trailer. And it was the only time in my life I really thought the trailer was going to flip. 
And uh, we had Lene and Evie with us. Lene's cousin Evie was with us. And they were bawling their eyes out. And lightning was striking. And the older girls and Angel and I ran and rushed over here. And lightning striking all around us. And we made it safely into the... You know, we didn't see that storm coming, so we've determined if we see any even close to coming, we're not staying in the target out there. Well, the Lord never says, wow, didn't know that was happening. That has never occurred to God. He knew exactly the storm was coming. But I want you to remember this. And as I break this down, sifting his followers, there's first of all trouble at sea, but then there's terror on board. Trouble at sea is in verse 24. Terror on board is verses 25 and 26. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And what happens then? When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were petrified, troubled. Said, it's a spirit, it's a ghost, it's an apparition. And they cried out for fear. Oh yeah, this storm's going from... From scary to spooky. I mean, they're petrified of the storm, and then all of a sudden they say, What in the world? It's a ghost. They have no idea who's coming. It's interesting. There'd been a previous occasion when a storm caught them by surprise. Not Jesus. Remember, he's in the back of the ship asleep, and they were bailing, and they're thinking, We're going to die. And somebody went and shook Jesus. Lord, don't you care? We're going to die. Carest thou not? We perish. You remember he got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves. And, and you remember their response? They said, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? See, this is progressive revelation. They're starting to say, this is not just your typical man. And he was man, but he is way more than man, as they're about to realize in this storm. The previous time he was with them in the storm. Now where is he on this storm? He starts out nowhere near them. And what's he doing? He's preparing them for a future time when he's no longer going to be with them on earth. In fact, what's he doing at the time when they're out in the middle of the sea? In this event, what's he doing? He's up in a mountain praying for them. And in the future when he would no longer be with them, what would he be doing? Praying for them. Just like he is you and me. You may think, where's the Lord in the midst of my storm? He's doing what he did in this storm. He's apart praying. Remember, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. So he's up there in the mountain, and then eventually he says, okay, time to go. Where are they? In the midst of the sea. He waits till they get smack dab in the middle of the sea. Now, I want to tell you, the Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long, about 8 miles wide. They're in the middle of it. When you're 8 miles from shore, in the middle of a storm, you can't see anything. You can imagine, they have no idea where, where they are. And these guys are seasoned mariners, you know, they're seasoned sailors. They have no idea where they are. All they know is they're about to die. And where's Jesus? Why in the world did he ever leave them? And all of a sudden, they look out there, what is that? And now they're, I mean, they're thinking we're going to die, and this must be the spirit world advancing toward us. They have no idea what to make of this. So there's trouble at sea, there's terror on board, but then there's a test of identity. Look at verses 27 to 29. Actually, I hadn't read, uh, hadn't, yeah, I did read 26. 27, but straightway, right away, Jesus spake to them saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Fellas, I'm sure he had to speak with some force, you know, over the wind. Fellas, cheer up, it's me. <laughs> be of good comfort, don't be afraid. I'm here to help you. And then what happened? Peter answered him, Lord, if it be thou... Bid me come unto thee in the water. Now, you know, Peter often spoke and then realized he had put his foot in his mouth, so to speak. He'd spoken without thinking. If it's really you, you tell me to come to you. But obviously, he thought about this because when the Lord says, you come, he doesn't even hesitate. 
He just got out of the boat. Whatever safety there was for them was in the boat, not out of the boat. He gets out. And where is he standing? On the water. And he starts walking to Jesus. And we have evidence that Peter actually walked on the water. And it's interesting, this week I was listening to some Chiefs coverage. When I'm in town, I catch up on all the sports stuff. And even when I'm out of town, I'll listen to tune-in radio to keep my KC connections, you know. And, and so I'll listen to local stuff. But I was listening to one of the sports talks guys that if I said, you'd all know. And, and uh, he was talking about Patrick Mahomes. And I hope they don't play him too much, as they obviously didn't. And, uh, you know, because, I mean, you know... Uh, He's not going to be the second guy to walk on water. And then the sports commentator says, well, if the first one actually did walk on water, I have my doubts. And then he said, I'm sure some of the people in this town might think me a heathen. And I'm thinking, yeah, I do, you know, after you said that. But you know what? Patrick Mahomes doesn't walk on water, but Jesus did. And Peter did. This is amazing. Now, Peter's not God. But he said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to thee. So he tells him, you get out. You know, there, there are two types of storms. There are storms of correction, and there are storms of perfection. Now, this comes from Warren Wearsby. I mentioned his commentary, so I want to give credit, all right? Uh, there are storms of correction, and there are storms of perfection. Some storms are meant to correct. How many times God sent trouble to the people of Israel to correct their ways? And so they were corrective in measure to bring them back. But this one's not a storm of correction. They hadn't done anything wrong. This is a storm to perfect them. To cause them to grow in their faith, to cause them to grow, to cause them to grow in their trust of God. And so uh, terror on board here then comes to this test of identity. When Jesus, and I love this, this is, this is a Wearsby paragraph. Why did Jesus walk on the water? This is good. To show his disciples that the very thing they feared, the sea, was only a staircase for him to come to them. Often we fear the difficult experiences of life, such as surgery or bereavement, only to discover that these experiences bring Jesus Christ closer to us. That is well said. Why did he walk on the sea? To show the sea was only a staircase to bring him closer to them. I thought about that surgery. Some of you have been through surgery in the past year you never thought you'd have. Some of you for cancer. Some of you for other problems. Some of you have been through bereavement. I've been in that class, too, myself. Never forget, you know, when Angel and I were um, planning our 15th wedding anniversary, we were going to go on a cruise to Alaska. And we were going to go with some friends of ours who had the same exact wedding day and year anniversary as we, and he's a pastor and his wife, and they were our very dear friends, and we're going to meet them up in Seattle and fly off. And I was over in Basor, Kansas, preaching for Joe Martin. And um, Martin. Yeah, okay. And I was preaching that week. It was a Sunday through Wednesday meeting. And on Tuesday of that week, my sister called me. We're driving back and forth. You know, it's only 45 minutes. So we're living here, driving back. And my sister called me Tuesday night. It would have been 9 o'clock here. She lives in the east. It was 10 o'clock there. I said, Rich, I've got to tell you something. And I just got to, I just, I can't do anything but come out with it. And I said, what is it? She said, we lost dad tonight. I'll never forget, it was May of 2008. And uh, I said, what do you mean? She said, Dad died. Wow. That was, my dad was 65 years old. He'd had his health problems, but he wasn't in any health crisis at the time. And uh, helping my sister install a, a window in their house, I think, a, as far as we can figure out, a, a bowel got kinked to blockage, and he hadn't felt well for a couple of days, and then 
EMTs came. Well, my sister and her husband are both nurses. They're working on my dad before the EMTs arrive. I can't imagine being my sister and trying to save your dad's life, and he doesn't make it, you know. Instead of going on a wedding um, anniversary, we were going back to New Jersey, where my family's from, where my father's grave plot was, the family plot. And, and I'm doing the funeral for my dad. I've learned this about storms, and I think most of you know this. You've heard this. When you go through a storm, when you go through a trial in your life, there are only two outcomes. You'll never be the same when a storm comes. You will ne- There's a new normal. You'll never be the same when a storm comes. But you can come out better or you will come out bitter. But you'll never be the same. And I can tell you, you know, looking back between 2000 and 2012, some of you have heard me run down this hashtag before, but 2000 was the shooting at our church. 2003, we lost our third child. It was our only boy, uh, stillbirth, 17 weeks into labor. And I was away from Angela when that happened. 2008, my dad died in 2012. My wife's sister, died. Uh, Sonia, died of cancer at age 34. I mean, between 2000 and 2012, there were enough events that could literally shake your faith. And I will say this, and it's no credit to us, but we came out stronger. And you know why? Just grace. There, there's no option but that God is good all the time. We know that. We know that. But it will be tested. And I can tell you, I love the Lord more after all these experiences than ever before. And it's not that I'm morbid. I mean, we have a saying in our house, and I think many of you have heard me say it before, trials in life are not electives, they are core curriculum. Trials in life are not electives, they are core curriculum. Those of you who go to college, you know, there are core classes you have to take. For me, I went to a liberal arts college with a Bible degree, but my liberal arts college demanded that we take history of civilization. Who in their right mind would take history of civilization? I had to take it, you know. I'm glad I did. I use history all the time for sermon illustration. I had to take vice and affliction. Well, they call it voice and diction, okay? Vice and affliction, we called it. And you had to learn to enunciate words. You had to learn how to project when you speak. And, well, who's going to use that in their life? I do. And, uh, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have chosen that class, but it was core. I took classes like soccer, volleyball, you know, bowling. Those, those are my electives. But uh, not all classes in life are electives. Trials in life are not electives. They're core curriculum. You've got to take the class. But classes weren't designed to hurt you. They're only designed to better you. And when you go through a storm in life, you'll either come out better or bitter. The, the deciding factor is grace. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Hebrews twelve fifteen. Psalm 55, 22, this is the verse I was quoting when we were hasting back from Tennessee here to Kansas City after the, the tragedy and the parsonage and person after person is calling. There's no texting yet. You know, it's cell phones. And, or I don't, I don't remember if there was texting. I wasn't texting. And person after person is calling and saying, how are you doing? Let's see, our pastor's wife and daughter just died in a murder-suicide. How am I doing? Well, I remember saying... You know, I can say that we are sustained. Psalm 55, 22. Cast thy burden upon the Lord. He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. I don't, I don't know of how long it's been since I gave you this illustration, but I took three years of piano lessons, and please, I'm not going to shock you because I can't play anything, okay? Uh, after three years of piano lessons, I didn't learn... Well, I learned two things. I know that this is middle C. And I also know that the piano pedal to the far right is called the sustain pedal. 
Listen to this. This is middle C. This is middle C with a sustain pedal. Whoops. Middle C and D. Listen. Without and with. Cast thy burden upon the Lord and He'll what? He'll sustain thee. He'll never suffer the righteous to be moved. Lord, if it's you then, invite me to come to you. Come, Peter. And he gets out. And he's walking on the water. Now, was there a statue of limitations here? Did Jesus say, five steps and you're going to sink? He could have walked indefinitely. And people say, do you think a Christian can live perfectly? That's interesting. In 1 John chapter 3, um, 1 John 3 says, let's see, um, in him is no sin. Let's see. Uh, his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin. Okay, it's talking about the believer. His seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin. 1 John also says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So is there a contradiction? No, his seed remains in him, the believer, and he, the Spirit of God, cannot sin. If I'm yielded to the Spirit of God, can I live sinlessly? Yes. Now, are we going to live sinlessly indefinitely? No. Why? Like Peter, we sink. But if we're depending upon Him, I do not have to sin. When I sin, it's because I've gotten out of dependence upon God. But for those moments, and this is what it means to abide in Christ, and abiding is what severs abiding relationship? Sin. So when you sin, what do you do? Lord, save me. Peter didn't need to be saved spiritually. He'd already been saved spiritually. But I'm sinking here. If we confess our sins, he's what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much? All unrighteousness. So that's what puts you back into abiding. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But hey, his seed remains in us and he, the Spirit of God, cannot sin. So as we're yielding to him, we're abiding in him. When we do sin... We've got to confess that sin to God and ask for His cleansing and come back into abiding fellowship. So our life is not one that we never sin, but it should be that we sin less. We're not sinless, but we sure should be sinning less as we're walking more and more with God, yielding to His Spirit. And ultimately, Paul said, oh, that I can attain to the resurrection of the dead. What's going to be true at the resurrection of the dead? I'm not sinking anymore. I'm not sinning anymore. I'm in perfect fellowship with God. I never sin again. Paul said, if I could live like that right now in this lifetime, that ought to be our hunger. Lord, I want to walk with you on the water. So there's uh, the, the test of identity. But finally, I want you to see this. The shifting of their focus. Shifting their focus in verses 30 to 33. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand, caught him and said to him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Let me stop for just a minute. Shifting their focus. There's, there's first of all, taming of the winds in verses 31 and 32. Uh, let me give you 32. When they were come to the ship, the wind ceased. Now, many are hard on Peter. Little faith. See, even Jesus said, oh, thou of little faith. No, no, just a minute. Keep things in context. Remember, Jesus had previously said to his disciples, if you have faith as the size of a what? Grain of a mustard seed. Mustard seed's the smallest seed. If you have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, and don't doubt, you'll say to this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. You'll have whatsoever you ask. Peter got out and walked on the water. Lord, bid me come to thee. Come. He gets out. And he's walking. It's only when he hears the wind and sees the waves 
It begins to sink. So he took his focus off of whom? Off of Jesus, off the Lord. And he shifted his focus where? To the circumstances. It's, whoa, it's scary out here. You and I live in perilous times. Now, I've lived in this town now longer than I lived in New Jersey, which was my birthplace. I've lived in Kansas City more than I've lived anywhere in my whole life, although I, I say that. I'm not here very often. But in our 26 years of residency here, residency here uh, my girls were even coming. You know, things are changing in this town. You don't feel necessarily as safe as you used to. You know, sometimes it's just kind of, some people around here are kind of creepy. And they weren't talking about you folks, okay, just so you know that. <laughs> people around here, some people are kind of creepy. Shouldn't surprise us, folks. This know also in the last days what kind of times will come. Perilous, Perilous times will come. And it's easy to get caught up with anxiety. It's easy to think, man, I don't know if I'm going to get shot at Walmart. I, I was a QT late, I'll admit that, last night. And some guys drove up in some loud cacophony of music. And I was sitting outside, just working through my prayer list a little bit, enjoying my Coke Zero and what else did I have? Donut. And uh, so I'm sitting there suffering as I'm having my prayer time because I'm walking, burning 500 calories. And uh, so as these guys came in, I just thought, ah, this is not a good scenario. So I kind of slipped into the men's room um, just thinking, you know, if something happens here, I'm going to be the guy to call 911. Now, nothing happened, but isn't it 10, 15 years ago, I wouldn't have been having those thoughts. Okay, but you know what my first thought was? Wait a minute, I cannot live my life in fear. The first thing is I go to God and I say, Lord, when my wife goes to Walmart, I don't need to fall to, oh, well, I don't know if I want her to go. Maybe I should be there. Like, I'm going to be any help? You know, I, I'm not opposed to us going to Walmart to help our wives. But the safety is of the Lord. You know, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. So do I need an armed guard everywhere I go? I got one. His name is Jesus Christ. And I'm not opposed to you packing. You've got a right to do it. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine last week and said, you pack in the pulpit? He said, well, I'm not really going to answer that question, but that probably should tell you everything you need to know. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> Tells me all I need to know. I said, a lot of my pastor friends carry. I, I have no qualm with that. But I want to tell you, you know, what's a handgun against an AR-15? And if somebody's hell-bent on destruction, safety is of the Lord. So you and I are not meant to live cowering in terror like, oh, it's just we live in a city. It's only the 31st biggest city in America, but it's like the third highest rate of murder lately. And uh, you know what? Our trust is not the fact. Well, I'm going to move. You know, moving back to land out of the will of God is not nearly as safe as being in the ship in the will of God. And so Peter's gotten the privilege to walk in the water. There's a test of identity here. I'm sorry, there is a, a shifting of their focus. Taming of the winds and then transfer of focus. He says to Peter, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou die? He's not rebuking Peter. Again, without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Hebrews 11.6. Did Peter believe God? Yeah. The Lord's just rebuking him in the sense of, I want you to just keep trusting. It's good to trust in the moment, but make this a habit. Make this a lifelong habit. This is a lesson to them that it's not just when I'm present with you in the ship that you're safe. If I'm up on the mountain praying for you, you're safe. If I'm up in heaven praying for you, you're just as safe as if I'm in the ship with you. Notice the last verse here, verse 33. 
Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Okay, remember when he'd been with them in the ship, they said, What manner of man is this? Our friend Ben Everson wrote a song, What Manner of Man Is This? I love the song. And he, he tires as quickly as I, and yet he can speak peace to the sea. And it's a great song. That was their first revelation in the storm was he's not just like any other man. In fact, now they're coming, no, he's not just man at all. He's the Son of God. And how did they come to that realization? In the storm. It's interesting, our, one of our hymns that we sing every time we go out on the men's retreat is, How Great Thou Art. And it, interesting, it, got, it was written in the, uh, I guess, the inspiration of storm. In fact, the first rendition of How Great Thou Art was written by a, by a Swedish man named Carl Bo- Boberg. He was in southern Sweden at a coastal uh, estate, and he went out for a walk. And this man would later become a member of the Swedish parliament. He was an editor of a newspaper. He was out walking, and and he just got caught in this violent storm. He said he noticed the sky went from gray to black. And then when the storm passed, it was just blue. And he wrote a poem intended for singing called um, O Store Good, which is O Great God. Well, it was later translated into German. And then it was translated into Russia. And then there was a missionary from England who was going to Russia. Actually, at that time, it was part of Czechoslovakia, the Carpathian Mountains. Uh, a, f- a fellow by the name of Stuart Hine was sent from England. He was uh, raised in a, in a Salvation Army home. And when he was just a young boy, he came to Saving Faith. Sounds a lot like our pastor. And uh, came to Saving Faith as a young boy and, and was largely influenced by the writings of Charles Spurgeon, again, being from England. Called to go as a missionary, went to the Carpathian Mountains of what then was the Czech Republic, uh, Russia. And he's out walking in the mountains one day, and he got caught in a storm. This is Stuart Hine, the Englishman. And he's remembering the words of Karl Boberg, in Swedish, but it translated into Russian. Now he's an Englishman in Russia. So he's got the Russian lyrics in his mind. And he thought, we need to put this into English. Oh, Lord, my God. You know the song. When I an awesome wonder. Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. You know what brought it to his mind? He's caught in a storm too. Thought he was going to die. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. Later, that same man, Stuart Hine, is in Romania. I don't know if you knew this part of it, John, but he went to Romania um, and he was with a group of young people there, and they were in the mountains. And he wrote the second verse. When through the woods and forest glade I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and uh, hear, hear the wind and feel the gentle breeze, or hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze, then sings my soul. My God, how great thou art. Later he wrote the third stanza while he was there in um, Eastern Europe, finally came back to England. In England, he met some uh, Russians who were believers. And he said they had been displaced. This is 1948. This is after World War II. They'd been displaced because of the war. And only two of all the Russians he met in the encampment and claimed to be believers. Only two were Christians. And one of those two talked about how he could not wait for the second coming of the Lord. You can imagine in the aftermath of World War II how alluring that would be. And that's when, when Stuart Hine wrote the, the last verse. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation, 
to take me home. What joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Isn't it interesting? Three of those verses were written with storms as inspiration. The first by Boberg the Swede. The second by, Carl, uh, by Stuart Hine when he got caught in a storm. And the fourth one in the aftermath of the storm of World War II when people more than ever were looking forward to the coming of Christ. I want to finish in Luke chapter 6, if you would, with me. Luke chapter 6. I've entitled it, Sink or Swim, I'm with Him. What the Lord wanted us to realize is no matter what storm comes our way, He wants our trust to be in Him. Those of us in pastor Sunday school, we've been going through the life of Joseph. And when Joseph was sold into slavery, he must have felt like his dreams were dashed. When he was then accused in Potiphar's house, he must have thought like God had forgotten him, sold into prison. When he interpreted the dreams of the baker and the butler and, and the butler forgot to tell Pharaoh, he must have thought like, I am really f- abandoned. The next thing you know, Pharaoh has a dream and Pharaoh puts Joseph as second most powerful man in all of Egypt, the viceroy, the governor of Egypt, if you will. It took a while. He was sold by his brothers when he was 17. He ends up in Pharaoh's court when he's 30. 13 long years. 13, man, that sounds like an unlucky number. God was in all of it. All of those miserable 13 years, God was in it. Look at this in Luke chapter 7. I'm sorry, chapter 6. In verses 46 to the end of the chapter. It's only five verses here. Four verses. Uh, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I'll show you to whom he's like. He's like a man which built a house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it. It was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream beat vehemently. And immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. You know, two men, two lives. The houses represent lives. The storms represent troubles earth-shattering trouble, like a diagnosis of cancer, like a murder, like the drowning of a fellow that you only married three days earlier. These are storms. They're hard. Nobody wants storms. Nobody wishes for storms. Storms are going to come. And remember this. Nahum 1 verse 3 says, The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind. The Lord knows how to take storms and work all things together for good. This world is groaning under the weight of sin, according to Romans chapter 8. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth, Romans eight sixteen. But one day it's all going to be set right. In the meantime... God is so sovereign. He's so powerful. He can supersede in the storm. Two men, interestingly, they both hear the word of God. We'd say they're both churchgoers. These guys represent every one of you. We mean these guys. You're one of these two. You're one or the other. You know, there may have been times in your life you vacillated between being one or the other. You can't be both at one time, but you are one or the other. See, you're not the people ignorant of the word. You hear the word, just like I do. But whose life stands? The one who does what God says. It's not mere doctrine that braces you for the coming storm. 
It's a foundation of doing what God says that braces you for the storm. You can have Scripture come in and out of your mind just like a sieve, and it means nothing. But here he went from seeking the Father to sifting the followers to shifting their focus, and that's what storms do. They'll put our attention back on God. I'll finish with this statement. I want you to think about it. You must settle by faith the fact that God is good, for it will not be your feeling when the ferocity of the storm strikes. Settle by faith the fact that God is good, for it will not be your feeling when the ferocity of the storm strikes. I think it was G. Campbell Morgan who said, whenever you and I go through the furnace of affliction, you can be sure of this. God's eye is always on the clock and his hand is on the thermostat. God's eye is always on the clock and his hand is on the thermostat. He knows how much heat you can take and he knows how long you need to take it. That's a good reminder. Can't fault Peter. He got out of the boat. It was a lesson in learning to build your faith. The Lord knew exactly the storm they were going into. But he was with them, even when they thought, we are hopeless. Third watch of the night, by the way, uh, fourth watch of the night would be like 3 o'clock in the morning. You've probably noticed it's always darkest before the dawn. God's never in a hurry, but he's always on time. Trust him. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege to speak at my home church today. And I love these people. 